Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com, where I've also been trying very hard to put links up on the website recently. So there's some cool pictures from the last several episodes and some links and a video or two. So if you're interested in learning more, evidence-based errata is the place to go. All right, let's start tonight with a mystery. The Earth's core is cooling. Okay, that makes sense, but it's actually cooling unevenly. This is leading to it becoming lopsided ever so slightly. We know this because the uneven nature of the core affects the way that seismic waves move through the solid iron inner core. It turns out that waves move significantly faster along the north-south poles than when they're traveling across the equator. The phenomena has been known for decades and is called seismic anisotrophy, but researchers weren't able to make a real working model with the available data. But now, new computer simulations of the core's growth over the last billion years may have come up with a viable solution. A new study in Nature Geoscience suggests that every year the Earth's inner core is growing in a lopsided pattern, with new iron crystals forming faster on the eastern hemisphere than on the western hemisphere. The movement of liquid iron in the outer core carries heat away from the inner core, causing it to freeze, lead study author Daniel Frost, a seismologist at the University of California, Berkeley, told Live Science. So this means the outer core has been taking more heat from the east side under Indonesia than the west under Brazil. Now, this doesn't, of course, mean anything like that the Earth's core is now pear-shaped. On average, the radius grows evenly by about 0.04 inches or one millimeter every year. Now, gravity causes crystals that grow faster on the east side to the west side. The crystals clump into lattice structures that stretch across the core's north-south axis. And it's these crystalline structures, which are parallel to the Earth's poles, that are what they call seismic superhighways, according to these new models. And so the seismic waves travel more quickly along these crystal structures, accounting for the observed differences in seismic wave speed. Now, of course, this doesn't tell us why this is happening and why the Earth's core is unbalanced. For that, the researchers have to look at the other layers of the Earth's crust. And so basically all of the layers need to be examined. Every layer in the Earth is controlled by what's above it and influences what's below it, he said. The inner core is slowly freezing out of the liquid outer core, like a snowball adding more layers. The outer core is then cooled by the mantle above it. So to ask the question of why the inner core is growing faster on one side than the other might be asking the question of why is one side of the mantle cooler than the other? 
and we don't actually know yet. So one answer might be tectonic plates, where cold plate material dives deep into the mantle at subduction zones. But researchers don't yet have proof that the mantle can impact the inner core. There's also the question of the magnetic field. Our field is generated by the movement of the liquid iron core, of the liquid iron in the outer core, and this movement is powered by heat loss from the inner core. If the inner core is losing more heat in the east than in the west, then the outer core will move more in the east too, according to Frost. The question is, does this change the strength of the magnetic field? These kinds of questions are actually beyond the scope of the current paper, however. Uh, Frost has begun work on new research with a team of geomag geomagnetists to see if this is affecting the Earth's magnetic field. And so, for instance, we know that um, the Earth's magnetic field is weakening over certain parts of the Earth, and we also know that at some point in the near geological future, uh, which is not necessarily the near our future, uh, geologic timescales are much bigger, that the uh, poles will flip again. And so at some point, the North Pole will become the South Pole and vice versa. Um, and this may have something to do with it, and it may not. We just don't have good enough models yet. And, you know, the problem is trying to track geologic time in human time. <laughs> and so some of these patterns, I was actually just glancing at an article earlier today about how someone has found, I forget what the exact number was, but it was like a 2.17 million year uh, cycle of the earth in some respect. And so that's a big number for humans to be able to grasp. And so something like this, where we've just noticed it, we don't know if this has happened in the past. We don't know if it's caused by anything. We don't know what it's caused by. And so we have to kind of continue to do research, unfortunately. It's always great when you can say, well, we've done this thing and we found it out. But most science is about, well, we found out this one thing and that led us to 52 other questions <laughs> that we don't have the answers to. Um, and as always, that's, that's science. And we love it despite the fact that it's constantly uh, telling us that it doesn't know. <laughs> Okay, so we are going to move now from the large scale of the planet to the submicroscopic. Now, microscopes are an indispensable part of scientific research, but they have a lower limit of usability. So basically, you can only use an optical uh microscope up to a certain point, And at that point, you can't see anything smaller. There's just a limit to how much magnification you can get with an optical microscope. Well, so then we created laser uh, microscopes. And so those are great. They absolutely bring down the limit of what you can see, except 
they have a few problems. <laughs> and so the bright laser light used to probe tiny objects can also destroy them, unfortunately. And so new research in the journal Nature uh, discusses a team of Australian and German researchers who describe how quantum technologies can offer a solution. And they've actually created a microscope that uses quantum technology to more gently probe items in order to break the visual barrier of lasers. And so the creation of a quantum microscope of this sort is actually a milestone on uh, the International Quantum Technology Roadmaps, which is not even a thing that I knew existed until just the other day. So the first microscope is thought to have been created by the Dutch lens maker Zachariah Janssen around the turn of the 17th century. In true human fashion, <laughs> he may have actually used that uh, technology as part of a uh, of a counterfeit coin operation. Um, I love that tidbit. That's a great one. Uh, so you know, in you create what is a seminal piece of uh, technology for science, and the first thing you think to do is to use it to counterfeit coins. Um, humans are great, <laughs> and I mean that in all seriousness. But, you know, they were soon taken up by legit scientists uh, like Robert Hooke, who used them to probe the mysteries of the microscopic world. And so Robert Hooke, uh, in the mid-1600s, uh, produces this book called Micrographia, and it's these absolutely incredibly detailed pictures of all sorts of things that he's seen under the microscope. And it's a revolutionary. It completely and utterly uh, changes the world in some respects. And it leads to a whole bunch of artistic um, movements and of, of people taking up that sort of idea and running with it. And it also sparks the imagination of a lot of scientists. And so the microscope is a very important part of our scientific history. And again, though, those optical microscopes have a limit. And so when we moved to lasers, they got us further into the realm of the microscopic. They allowed us to see 10,000 times smaller than the thickness of a human hair. They even won the 2014 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for having really pushed down that limit of what we could see. So laser microscopes, awesome, totally great, up again to a point. And so they have allowed us to vastly expand our understanding of cells and molecules like the DNA, which is contained within them. However, not only do they have a lower limit, they also have that flaw. The best laser microscopes have an intensity that is a, that is billions with a B times brighter than sunlight on Earth's surface. And as you can imagine, that leaves a mark. Most living cells that are imaged by laser microscopes sicken or die within seconds. And so the new quantum microscope uses quantum entanglement of photons in the laser beam. 
And so they use this entanglement to control the photons. And that, that leaves the microscope, the photons that leave the microscope in order to have them behave in an orderly fashion. And this reduces noise. And so noise is a term that is used for basically when you're trying to look at something, you might see fuzziness around the edges and that's noise. Um, noise is kind of the uh, extraneous information that you're getting on the edges of the information that you really want. And so by reducing noise, they're actually able to reduce the intensity needed for the laser, thus reducing the damage done to the object being observed. And so in order to protect quantum entanglement that was to produce quantum entanglement that was bright enough for a laser microscope, the team concentrated the photons into laser pulses that were only a few billionths of a second long. This produced entanglement that was 1,000 billion times brighter than previously used in imaging. And so this produces 35% better image clarity without destroying the sample. And so the microscope is used to image the vibrations of molecules within a living cell, allowing the team to see detailed structures that would be otherwise invisible. According to Warwick Bowen, professor of quantum and precision technologies at the University of Queensland, Quantum imaging may soon revolutionize everything from microscopy to gravitational wave direct detectors, which we're going to talk about in a second, and can even potentially be used in things like GPS, navigation, and a whole range of other systems. Quantum technology is definitely the cutting edge new guy on the block when it comes to scientific breakthroughs. And so, yeah, it's pretty exciting to be able to use this quantum entangled uh, microscope in order to see even smaller. And so there's actually a picture um, that I didn't link to, but I'll try and remember to link to later, where there's a side-by-side -side image where there's the traditional laser um, microscope image, and it shows part of a cell, and it's kind of fuzzy, and you can sort of barely see the outer um the outer lining of the cell and it's it's pretty fuzzy and then you look at the one produced by the quantum microscope and it has a pretty uh decent outline of the cell membrane and it actually shows some fat cells inside of the cell itself some fat deposits and you can actually see them as distinct um sort of globules within the cell. And you can sort of see a hint of them in the other um, picture, but they're not nearly as developed. So you can really see that 35% increase in the image clarity. And so again, the better that you can see what's going on in the cell, the more you can understand about the cell and, you know, also other applications. But a lot of this is biotech uh, is using these microscopes to better understand how things happen in the cell in order to develop better cancer drugs and better, um, you know, vaccines and everything else. And so anything 
we can do to continue to reduce the amount of, um, or to increase the uh, range, I should say, of these microscopes is very important and very good. Okay, let's actually talk now about LIGO, uh, which is the gravitational wave uh, observatory slash uh, detector. And so LIGO has had a new experiment done where researchers have used the facility to chill a 10 kilogram mass down to less than one billionth of a degree above absolute zero. So just as a quick refresher, if you don't know about absolute zero, um, absolute zero is the state at which an atom or molecule ceases movement. In reality, temperature is a measure of how fast an atom or molecule is moving. And so basically temperature is actually a measurement of atomic movement rather than what we could, we would consider it to be in the sense of, you know, hot versus cold, things like that. And our feeling of it, our perception of it, is not the scientific definition in any way, shape, or form. The scientific definition involves movement. So theoretically, at absolute zero, the atoms have stopped and are as cold as possible. Now, in practice, as far as we can tell, nothing can ever truly reach absolute zero due to the uncertainty principle. So there's always some movement because we can never tell exactly where the atoms are at any one moment until we measure them. And so there's always a little bit of um, Brownian motion going on, and we just can't get it all the way to stopping. But researchers have been getting substances closer and closer to that horizon, And so our working definition of absolute zero is when a substance reaches a, quote, motional ground state, where it is as close as possible to the state of absolute stopping of motion. And so uh, we're going to talk more about this experiment, but plans are already underway to increase the sensitivity in future detectors to get even closer to that horizon. And so the current detector, the actual LIGO detector, the way it works is that it fires lasers down long tunnels and bounces the beams between two pairs of 40 kilogram mirrors, which then combine to produce an interference pattern. Tiny changes in the distance between the mirrors show up as fluctuations in the laser intensity. And so in order to minimize the fluctuations, the motion of each mirror is controlled very precisely to isolate them from any surrounding vibrations and even to adjust for the impact of the laser light bouncing off of them. And so basically they're suspended like pendulums. And so they're suspended by wires and their movement is very carefully um, calibrated using uh, dampeners and um, they are really, really uh, kept at a very minimum amount of movement. And so in this, they were actually able to 
get that movement down very, very low. And so the quote unquote mass that was cooled to almost absolute zero isn't actually a specific mass. So you couldn't pick it up with your hand or even an instrument. Instead, the mass is actually the equivalent mathematically of the differences in motion of the four 40 kilogram mirrors, which add up to a single 10 kilogram mirror. Now I know that's a lot to (laughs) unpack there, um, that it's not an actual, um, you know, physical object that's being cooled, but it's this system. Um, and so that's really how you should think about it. You should think about it as the system rather than as an object. And so the temperature of the 10 kilogram mirror is defined by its constituent atoms and molecules. However, we don't measure the motion of each individual molecule. Instead, we measure the average motion of all of the atoms or the center of mass motion. Now, this is part an artifact of the actual detector setup, as this is the way that the instrument is able to detect gravitational waves. So, And this is kind of hard to grasp, but as we know, physics is often very counterintuitive. Um, (laughs) So there are as many ways the atoms can move as there are atoms. So if you think about Brownian motion and the uncertainty principle and the idea that atoms are kind of jiggling around uh, most of the time, that, you know, there's a lot of ways they can jiggle. (laughs) And so... Basically, what they did is that they only measured them and only slowed them down in one way. And so that's how the atoms were cooled, is that they were only they were only constrained in one way. And again, remember that cooled just means that they were slowed down by a large measure. And so this ultimately means that the four physical mirrors are actually at room temperature. And in fact, uh, the um, the researcher noted that if you were to touch them, they'd actually be warm to the touch. But of course, he also said, we would never let anyone touch them because <laughs> they're so highly calibrated and uh, probably extremely highly polished. Um, but the average motion of that 10 kilogram mathematical quantity of the system is brought down to just 0.77 nanokelvins or less than one billionth of a degree above absolute zero. And so this actually translates to around 11 phonons on average moving in the mirror's mass. So a phonon is kind of equivalent to a photon, but it's basically just a excited atom. So about 11 atoms moving around um, in the structure of the mirror. And so this feat was performed by members of Australia's Osgrav Gravitational Wave Research Center at the Advanced LIGO uh, facility. And these included Chris Whittle, David Ernest McClellan, Robert Ward, and Terry McRae. Now, the work was actually part of testing the quantum-squeezed light system in the detector. 
And so this system creates and injects a specially engineered quantum field into the detector to make it more sensitive to the motions of the mirrors and thus more sensitive to gravitational waves. So this is actually the application, again, of that quantum uh, theory of our understanding of quantum fields. We're actually using it not only in microscopes now, but also in gravitational wave detectors. And so the way that it does this is it uses a special kind of crystal to produce pairs of highly entangled photons to reduce the amount of noise, again, in the system. And while the cooling is in service of making the detector even more accurate and thus better able to detect gravitational waves, it may at some point also offer insights into the mystery of the connection between the quantum and macro worlds between quantum mechanics and gravity. And again, right now, we're not close enough to see real answers, but as LIGO is improved, the experiment can be run again to see if researchers can create a human-sized object, quote-unquote, that crosses over into the quantum world. And so that is pretty exciting. All right, we're going to take a break and do a few show promos and some PSAs. And then we're actually going to come back and talk about some of the work that's come out of LIGO and how it pertains to Stephen Hawking's uh, theorems on black holes. And um, if you're already confused and bewildered, prepare to continue along that line, at least for a little while, um, because the quantum world is weird. All right. uh, You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Please stay tuned. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Hey everyone, DJ Man of Nowhere here. Tune in to our show Arts Electronica, dedicated to downtempo, ambient, electronic and house music, but also techno and trance, with a hint of progressive and deep house, dubstep and experimental. We'll have all the music wizards here that bring to life their poetry throughout their sound spaces, soundscapes and sound sculptures. Arts Electronica goes live on Saturdays at midnight to 2 a.m. Sunday morning. Check us out. It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Steve in Lakewood, Colorado wants to know, what's the proper way to dispose of used household batteries? Well, Steve, alkaline batteries, the most widely used type, contains zinc, which can harm certain aquatic species. The federal regulators, unlike some states, do not consider them dangerous enough to require special treatment. Check out earth911.org to see if anyone collects alkaline batteries in your area. If not, look up Battery Solutions or the Big Green Box, who will recycle them for a fee. Rechargeable batteries, like those found in billions of cell phones, should definitely be recycled because they contain dangerous heavy metals like cadmium and lithium. However, thousands of stores nationwide take them back. Visit calltorecycle.org to find one near you. Finally, honor the mantra, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Fewer gadgets is a sure cure for disposal angst. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. 
Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. Sundays from 4 to 6, please join Adam on the air for Metal Education. Each week, we'll delve into a different area of the genre, take requests, and generally cause mayhem, and enjoy our Sunday school. That's WXOJ FM Metal Education with Adam on the Air every Sunday. See you there. By now, you have heard that using compact fluorescent light bulbs, or CFLs, can save you money on your energy bill. But have you heard that there is a law requiring Massachusetts residents to recycle them? Keep in mind, they can't be recycled curbside, so do your part. Drop off your used CFLs at your local participating retailer. For more information on recycling and where to do it, visit lamprecycle.org Massachusetts. And thank you. Hey kids, let mom help with your science project. This new mom wants her kids' science project to thrive. Too bad she hasn't cracked a science book since 1985. A metathesis reaction? Compounds, mixtures, and elements. Even this baking soda volcano is too big of an experiment. Whoa. Now she's completely forgotten the periodic table. Now she's burning a hole through the kitchen table. Burning with science. But her kids' love for the mom is truly transparent. Proof you don't have to be perfect to be the perfect parent. Don't tell Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of siblings in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Spring and summer are prime time for ticks that can spread Lyme disease and other infections. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like to remind you to wear bug repellent when outdoors, shower as soon as possible after coming indoors, and check your whole body for ticks every day. If you've been bitten by a tick and develop fever, rash, or fatigue, seek medical care. To learn more, visit www.cdc.gov slash Lyme. And we are back. And I always like to play that one, especially around here, because Lyme disease is definitely uh, indigenous in this area, uh, endemic. <laughs> uh, I think the word I was looking for was endemic. Um, and so I've been hearing some from some of my friends who have dogs that go outside that uh, apparently there are lots of ticks out there right now. And they may not be the ones that c cause Lyme disease, but... Um, Ticks can cause other kinds of disease and, you know, they're just not great. So uh, make sure that when you're going outside, you are coming in and definitely uh, giving yourself a once over to make sure that there aren't any uh, ticks hanging on you. Okay, so we're going to talk about LIGO. And so what has LIGO been up to? Well, recent examination of the data from gravitational waves seems to prove one of Stephen Hawking's most famous theorems. 
derived in 1971 from Einstein's theory of general relativity. It states that the surface area of a black hole cannot decrease over time. And so this is related to entropy. In a closed system, entropy must always increase. And because a black hole's entropy is proportional to its surface area, both must always increase. However, <laughs> and this is where, uh, again, the whole uh, physics is weird, sometimes at the uh, macro level as well. Another of the physicists' proven theorems is that black holes should evaporate over very long timescales. Now, we're talking very long timescales, like many times longer than the universe has existed at this point, um, but still should evaporate. So figuring out how both of those theorems can be true may actually lead to some new physics. And uh, a lot of people think we need some new physics. So hopefully uh, somebody will be able to suss that out. A black hole's surface area can't be decreased, which is like the second law of thermodynamics. It also has a conservation of mass, so you can't reduce its mass. So that's analogous to the conservation of energy. Lead author Maximiliano Issy, an astrophysicist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, told Live Science. Initially, people were like, wow, that's a cool parallel. But we soon realized that this was fundamental. Black holes have an entropy, and it's proportional to their area. It's not just a funny coincidence, it's a deep fact about the world that they reveal. And so a black hole's surface can decrease with a faster rate of spin. But even if you threw an object hard enough into the hole's event horizon to cause it to spin fast enough to theoretically decrease in surf surface area, it just won't work. It will never lead to a decrease in the surface area. You'll make it spin more, but not enough to counterbalance the mass you've just added, Issy said. Whatever you do, the mass and the spin will make it so that you end up with a bigger area. And so the researchers studied the collision of two massive black holes that were the first to be detected by gravitational waves. The researchers studied the signal before and after the two holes merged into a new black hole in order to calculate the surface area of each black hole before and after the collision. As they spin around each other faster and faster, the gravitational waves increase in amplitude more and more until they eventually plunge into each other, making this big burst of waves, Issy said. What you're left with is a new black hole that is in this excited state, which you can then study by analyzing how it's vibrating. It's like if you ping a bell, the specific pitches and durations it rings with will tell you the structure of that bell and also what it's made of, made out of. And so the surface area of the new black hole was actually greater than that of the two initial holes combined which confirms Hawking's area law with a 95% confidence level. Now, this was, in fact, the result that was expected given the known laws of physics. The real mystery remains how to connect the world of the macro with the world of the quantum. 
The problem is that according to general relativity, the black hole cannot shrink. But according to quantum mechanics, they can. They do this with the emission of so-called Hawking radiation, a fog of particles emitted at the edges of black holes through quantum effects. This leads them to shrink and over a massively long timeline to evaporate. Because the timeline is so vast, it doesn't violate the area law in the short term, but it does in the long term, and such messiness just doesn't sit well with physicists. Statistically, over a long period of time, the law is violated, Issy said. It's like boiling water. You're getting steam evaporating from your pan, but if you only limit yourself to looking at the disappearing water inside of it, you might be tempted to say the entropy of the pan is decreasing. But if you take the steam into account too, your overall entropy has increased. It's the same with black holes and hawking radiation. And so the next step is, as often the case, to get new and better data to analyze. I'm obsessed with these objects because of how paradoxical they are. They're extremely mysterious and confounding, yet at the same time, we know them to be the simplest objects that exist, Issy said. This, as well as the fact that they're where gravity meets quantum mechanics, makes them the perfect playground for our understanding of what reality is. So that is pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> like I said, quantum physics, it's, it's very counterintuitive sometimes. Um, it's really hard to understand how two things that seem completely impossible to be true at the same time might somehow end up to be true at the same time. Um, <laughs> or it might be that we just are completely and utterly clueless as to what's really going on in quantum mechanics. Um, I think it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B at the same time, personally. So let's go back to speaking about quantum entanglement even more intimately. This time we're going to talk about a team of physicists in the Netherlands and Germany who recently placed several titanium atoms under a scanning tunneling microscope. These atoms were in constant interaction with each other through the direction of their spins. The team was able to hone in on a single pair of atoms, zapping one with an electric current in order to flip its spin and then measured the reaction of its partner. As the two atoms were quantumly entangled, this meant that the researchers could observe the change in spin in the other atom once the electric signal had forced a flip in its companion. While the spin change should be able to work over long distances, the famous spooky action at a distance that Einstein despaired over, uh, one of the reasons that he hated quantum physics for the most part. But in this case, the two atoms were just a little over a nanometer apart, close enough for the two particles to interact with one another, but far enough apart that they could be measured. And that's the important bit. The main finding is that we have been able to observe how atomic spins behave over time as a result of their mutual interaction, said co-author Sander Ott, a quantum physicist at the Kavli Institute of Nanoscience at the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. Previous work has allowed researchers to measure the strength of various atomic spins and the influence of that strength on the, on the atom's energy level. 
But this experiment allowed them to observe that interaction over time, which was the real big deal here. And so the eventual hope is that experimental physicists will be able to simulate quantum interactions at will, tweaking a quantum system in a controlled manner and basically seeing what happens. And so this is the first step in that process. Um, and, and it was described in a paper published in the journal Science. This is a very nice demonstration of a very simple quantum simulator, said Ella Lachman, a quantum physicist at UC Berkeley who wasn't involved in the new study. By controlling the positions of the atoms, we can theoretically build a replica of a lattice or any system we want to study the dynamics of. And so the team used titanium atoms because of their simplicity. They have the fewest possible spins. They're either up or down. The atoms were bound on a magnesium oxide surface, with, which held them in place so that the researchers could expect, inspect them without having to find them, basically. They knew where they were. The grid was kept in a near vacuum and at just one Kelvin, so the atoms could be individually picked out under the tip of the microscope. They could then reverse the atom spin by zapping one atom in a pair with an electric pulse, which would immediately cause its neighbor to react. The reaction takes about 15 nanoseconds. While other researchers have affected the spin of entangled atoms, the effect is generally too quick to be observed. The breakthrough here is that the state change was observable in real time. It gave the team the ability to sense the most minute of minute interactions. Methods like the spin resonance technique are simply too slow, said Lucas Veldman, a quantum physicist at the Kavli Institute, in a in a uh, released from Delft University. You have barely started twisting the one spin before the other starts to rotate along. This way, you can never investigate what happens upon placing the two spins in opposite directions. And of course, while this is a good proof of concept, it is in some ways very simplistic. The more atoms you add to the system, the more complicated the signaling gets, with messages passing both out to other atoms and back to the original atoms all at the same time, effectively, because the time uh, dilation is so small. As always, the toy models are nice, but once we add to them the complexity we are truly interested in, the questions of measurements and interpretations of them become more complicated, Lachman said. Can they do the same experiment with three atoms while only measuring one? Probably yes, but the interpretation of the measurement becomes more complicated. How about 10 atoms, 20? Time and ingenuity will tell if this is a cool experiment, demonst experimental demonstration of a toy model or something deeper. The potential is there. And that complicated nature is not lost on the experiments themselves, with Ott noting that if we increase to 20 spins, my laptop could no longer calculate what happens. At 50, the best supercomputers in the world would give up, and so forth. He said, if we ever want to understand precisely how the complex behavior of certain materials comes about, an excellent example is superconductivity, we would have to quote-unquote build materials from scratch and see how the laws of physics play out when increasing from 10 to 100 to 1,000 atoms. But of course, all journeys 
start with a single step. And so hopefully this will lead us to a better understanding of the weird and mind-bending world of quantum interactions. Because again, as we have found several times tonight, sometimes physics just really doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, <laughs> it is uh, sometimes very confusing. And so... Um, the best you can do is try and kind of flow with the weirdness. Um, there's, of course, the you always have to mention the um, when you're talking about quantum physics, you always have to uh, mention the Fenneman uh, quote, which is that if you think that you understand quantum physics, you're lying, or you just or you don't understand it at all. Um, and so. It's definitely a weird place full of things like spooky action at a distance. Uh, we have no idea how it is that entangled, um, entangled atoms actually are able to almost instantly be able to affect other atoms. How the spin change on one affects the spin change on its entangled partner. We can observe it, and this is a great way to have observed it in real time, but we still don't understand how it's happening. We're able to see it, but we don't understand the physics of how that signal is getting through in in a lot of fundamental ways. Um, so yeah. Okay. We are going to jump up into the world of macro particles and talk about an awesome new invention. And so researchers have devised bite-sized, in some cases, edible models of molecules in order to help students who are blind better understand the chemicals they're studying. And so the candy-like models of molecules allow the students to use their mouths to feel, to feel rather than see their structure. Study author Brian Shaw, a chemistry professor at Baylor University in Texas, has a lab which is working on unraveling the complex processes of how proteins in the brain can become misfolded and act like prions, causing diseases such as amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. But he has another goal, to teach high school students who are visually impaired to better understand the basic principles of biochemistry. Using the mouth to visualize complex imagery might help any student, but it was inspired by the need to make 3D imagery more accessible to students with blindness, Shaw said in an email to Gizmodo. Shaw's pursuit comes from home. His son developed a rare form of eye cancer when young, and this caused full blindness in one eye and severe impairment in the other. And so, in a new paper published in Science Advances, he looked at how students interacted with several prototype devices. Among the models was one for hemoglobin. And so, these were made in different sizes and had different materials, including including edible gel gelatin uh, in the sense of uh, the same kind of gelatin like you would make gummy bears, basically. And so uh, non-edible models were attached to a safety loop of thread or floss to prevent accidental swallowing. 
The students, including those with blindness, were able to successfully play with the models without harm, and their mouths were usually enough to help them recall shapes they had been shown earlier. Your mouth, your tongue and lips can help you visualize complex 3D imagery and signs, even if the models are as small as a rice grain, Shaw said. Here we used 3D models of large protein molecules and found that your mouth can recall different molecular shapes at about 85% accuracy, which is comparable to eyesight. So your tongue can see about as well as your eyes. And so not only are they a novel teaching tool, but they'd be fast and cheap to produce and easy to store inside classrooms. The resin in the non-edible models costs around 10 cents a model, though manufacturers wouldn't be able to create the smallest ones made in the lab, which again, were around the size of a grain of rice, but they don't need to be that small. And so Shaw and his team are planning on refining the models, including testing out other features such as adding texture or relevant flavors. So for instance, if it's a molecule that's associated with something like um, a flavonoid maybe, and uh, it might taste something like blueberry, or uh, if it's a flavonoid involved in blueberries or something like that. I can see that. That would be really cool. Or um, the structure of something like vanillin, maybe. Though I don't know. I think vanillin is a more complex molecule. I don't think it's just one molecule. But anyways, their goal is to create a real-world product that is adopted in schools and would expand everyone's knowledge of science, but eventually those with visual impairments. Chemistry is the central science, and it has historically excluded students with blindness. When you keep kids out of chemistry, you keep them from understanding other parts of science, Shaw said. We need to fix this, and we're trying to do our part here. And so I think that's really amazing and awesome. Um, I think that it is so good. And, you know, we have such a problem with science teaching in this country and uh, everything that helps improve that is a welcome uh, addition because we definitely have a big problem with science education in this country. Um, okay, so we are going to finish tonight with something a little more prosaic. The continued ability of humans to hurt themselves in the pursuit of fashion and the fact that history is often cyclical. Now, women today have perhaps started, though results on that may vary, to break free of the need to wear high heels all the time, but many still do. I can't. I have bad ankles and a foot with damaged tendons, so I'd simply hurt myself rather than look good in high heels. But women who wear high heels every day for years often do damage to their feet. But of course, high heels are considered high fashion, and so lots of women are willing to go through the pain of wearing them. But it turns out that this isn't the first time that Western culture has decided to suffer in the face of foot fashion. Now, of course, we can talk about uh, forms of this in the East as well, uh, the practice of foot binding, which is an extreme, extreme form of this. But tonight we're interested in a short, relative 
short uh, trend in medieval Europe of wearing extremely pointed shoes called krakows because they were thought to have originated in Poland's capital, Krakow. Um, they were also called pikes or poulains. And so I'm going to use poulains because that's the one I'm most familiar with uh, having seen and um, in most of the um, places that I've seen it, they use poulain. And so the poulain actually could also refer to the point itself rather than the full shoe. Now I've linked to an Atlas Obscura article with several pictures on the website. So there's a picture of a particularly um, impressive poulain uh, on the website and it links to the article. Now, if you've ever seen, for instance, Rowan Atkinson's show Blackadder, then you've, you've seen the example of this type of shoe. It's uh, sort of a soft shoe and then it has a very, uh, it narrows quite quickly um, at the toes into a very long and kind of ridiculous point. Most shoes in the 12th century were ankle boots that had round toe boxes, said lead author Jenna Dittmar, an archaeologist now at the University of Aberdeen. Then, during the 14th century, shoes diversified, and in many styles, we start seeing shoes with pointed toes that grew longer and longer in some places. They came into fashion around 1382 when Richard II married Anne of Bohemia. The shoes were worn, were worn by both men and women, but in this case, men wore the most extreme versions, with toes up to five inches long. The toes would have been stuffed with moss, wool, or horsehair to help retain their shape. And we have literary but no archaeological evidence that the longest versions may have been tied up to the legs in order to aid in walking. If you were a man of status and you had enough wealth, you wanted to show that off, Rebecca Shawcross, author of Shoes and Illustrated History, says. And to do that, you need to take the toe to the extreme. Of course, being hard to walk in was part of the appeal. The shoes pointed to the fact that the wearer was someone who had not toiled for their supper. It's a time when tunics are getting shorter and young men would have been showing off their legs, notes Jackie Keeley, senior curator at the Museum of London, so low-cut shoes would have accentuated and elongated the leg all down to that long point. And so the reason that we know about this is because it often led to foot problems. And so, in fact, it it involved a uh, sharp rise in the uh, instances of bunions. And so, uh, University of Cambridge archaeologists studying area skeletons found far more bunions in the remains from 14th and 15th centuries uh, skeletons than those from earlier in the age before the adoption of the Poulain. We were quite fortunate that we happened to be studying a time period where there was a clear change in shoe fashion somewhere in the middle of our sample, co-author Piers Mitchell told The Guardian. People really did wear ridiculously long pointy shoes just like they did in Blackadder. And so the clinical term for a bunion is hallux valgus. It involves the joint connecting the big toe to the rest of the foot, being deformed because the toe is being bent too far toward the other toes. Now, we're not sure of all the reasons for a bunion arising. Some people might have a genetic propensity, but the condition can be exacerbated by tight shoes, high heels, and rheumatoid arthritis, among other reasons. But they all have one thing in common. They affect how you walk, increasing pressure on the toe. 
And so because the big toe is so important for balance, bunions can actually cause the person to develop an unstable gait. Um, there is a little bit more to the story, but I am out of time for tonight. So I'm going to publish it on the website. And so, um, if you want to know more about, uh, Poulain's and about, uh, how much people are willing to go to in order to look fashionable, um, do go there and read the rest of the, um, information that I have on it. All right. That is all the time I have for tonight. Please, uh, come back, come back next week. You have been listening to evidence-based radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.